All right, well, let me provide a quick recap. Uh, we saw, what we saw last time in Romans chapter 10 was that first century Israel had ample opportunity to repent and believe the Gospels. The Gospel preachers indeed were sent to Israel. Uh, preachers preached the Gospel to Israel and Israel heard the preaching. But due to their obstinate disobedience, Israel did not believe the Gospel. Most Jews 2,000 years ago who sat under that preaching rejected the message of Christ And that same rejection, of course, was prophesied in Old Testament scripture. But even in the face of deliberate, stubborn disbelief and covenantal unfaithfulness, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, the corporate entity of Israel, the entire nation. God has not rejected Jews. How do we know that? Because there's a small remnant of new covenant Christian Jews chosen by grace, and there has been for these 2,000 years. And that fact is evidence of God's gracious present faithfulness to the nation. This is all by way of recap. God is presently fulfilling his covenantal promises to the Jewish patriarchs by saving some Israelites, some Jews. Uh, Paul summarized the situation for us in 11.7. The preaching of the gospel has now divided Israel into two groups. There is a minority, the remnant who have obtained salvation, and the majority... Uh, who have been hardened. All right then, what about Israel's future? Will the beneficiaries of God's covenant promises to Israel permanently be merely a remnant within Israel? That's a big question. The answer Paul gives is no. At some point in the future, Israel's hardening is going to be removed. And the present tiny remnant of Jewish Christians will be expanded to include a much greater number of Jews who are obedient to the gospel. As Paul puts it in 11.26, this is the much debated text that we're going to be considering later today, all Israel will be saved. Which means Israel's rejection of the gospel is neither total nor final. In fact, Israel's reconciliation with God through the gospel of Jesus Christ will trigger the climactic end of salvation history, I've argued, the return of Jesus, the final resurrection. And the Apostle Paul, himself a Jew, he wants the church to understand this current situation, a state of affairs that's now lasted almost two millennia, uh, but one day it's going to change. And so the church of Jesus the Messiah awaits the day when Israel's unbelief and Israel's rejection will be replaced by faith and acceptance of Jesus the Messiah. We await the day when the natural branches will be grafted into the olive tree of the people of God once again. Which means as the new covenant people of God, the church needs to be looking at Jews and our relationship toward Jews and the promise promises God made to the Jewish patriarchs and our own salvation in light of those patriarchal promises, uh, the Jewish rejection of the gospel, the future full inclusion of Israel, and our own, our own contrary to nature, Paul calls it, Gentile ingrafting into the family of God, into that olive tree. Regarding all those things, we need a biblical perspective, which is something I think that's sorely, sorely lacking in the church today. So, and so, what this remaining section of Romans 11 is concerned with, where it warns and chastises uh, Christian Gentiles, is this, is boasting in our inclusion in the people of God due to our profound ignorance of salvation history and the grace of God. Romans commentator par excellence Doug Moo writes this, Here surfaces what is probably one of the basic purposes of the letter to the Romans. Gentiles have become the majority in the church at Rome, as well as in the church at large. 
they are tempted, these Gentiles, to take undue pride in their position, even to the extent of thinking they have now replaced the Jews in God's plans. Paul disabuses them of this notion, showing that by an act of sheer grace, they have been added to Israel. You see, our spiritual heritage is the Jewish heritage. Did you know that? It's a Jewish heritage. Gentiles who come to faith in Jesus the Messiah become part of the community of salvation founded upon God's promises to the Jewish patriarchs. Here is something we must understand, and I'm going to be borrowing this insight from a book I read years ago by John Riesinger called Abraham's Four Seeds. I recommend it to you. It's a good book. All of Scripture, from Genesis chapter 12 to the end of the book of Revelation, is the story of Abraham and his offspring, his seed, his children, his descendants, and how his children relate to the rest of humanity. From Genesis 12 all the way to the end of Revelation. In fact, the Bible tells us that every blessing experienced by the nation of Israel was only because of God's promise to Abraham. Exodus 2, 23-25 tells us that the nation of Israel was delivered from Egypt and formed into a nation at Mount Sinai only because of their physical relationship with Abraham. We're told by Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, verse 72, that Jesus came into the world to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father, Abraham. Luke tells us in Acts chapter 3, 25 to 26, that the apostles preached the gospel as the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with Abraham. But those covenantal promises God made with Abraham and some of his physical children, after all, um, Ishmael and Esau were not children of the promise, even though they were Abraham's biological descendants. The line of covenantal promise went through the line of who? Do you remember? Isaac and Jacob. Those covenantal promises also carry over in the New Testament to all of Abraham's spiritual children, all who have faith in Jesus Christ, even uncircumcised Gentiles, if you please. We read in Galatians 3.14, Jesus died on the cross so that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. In fact, it is impossible to understand books of the Bible such as Galatians or Romans without grasping the significance of Abraham and his relationship with believers today. Because we read in those books that all who are of faith are Abraham's children. Galatians 3.9, Romans 9. All that to say, to read our Bibles properly as God intends us to read his holy word, we must see that the whole history of salvation revolves around promises God made to Abraham and his children, his seed, 4,000 years ago in Genesis. Understand that, and the Bible makes a whole lot more sense. All sorts of things fall into place. God has not made a transition from one people of God to another. The church has not replaced Israel. There is an historical continuity in the people of God. And as a spiritual entity, Israel is organically connected to the church. We're going to see that today. And as an ethnic community, an ethnic entity, uh, as we've already seen in chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, Jews continue to exist as the object of God's care and attention. This is how Paul begins. So look at verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 16. If the part 
of the dough offered as first fruits is holy or set apart for special attention because that's what holiness can mean. It doesn't always mean moral purity. If the first part of the dough is holy, consecrated, set apart for special attention, then so is the whole batch. In the same way, if the root is holy, so are the branches. That is, if the root is consecrated, if the root is set apart for special attention, the branches are too. And what this means, of course, is that God's election of the Jewish patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that election sanctifies Israel as a whole, sets them apart. It sets them apart from the nations. Israel is dedicated as a special possession of God, and that didn't stop 2,000 years ago when Jews started rejecting Jesus Christ. Which isn't to say that every person in Israel is or will be saved, but they are in a special relationship to God. Why is that? Because at the beginning of Israel's history, God chose and set apart for himself Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those men were singled out by God and made his own special possession and devoted to him in the obedience of covenantal faithfulness. He was their God. They were his people. They were the dough offered as first fruits. They were the root. And Paul's confidence that one day all Israel will be saved, verse 26, his confidence that a future generation of Jews will turn to Jesus Christ in, and believe in massive numbers is implied in that original election and co- covenant commitment God made to Israel at the beginning. We're going to unpack all that more in a second. But first, Paul uses this metaphor of root and branches to chastise, chastise and warn Gentile Christians against their pride, against spiritual pride. And he does this famously by comparing the people of God, both Jew and Gentile, to what? An olive tree. And as you can see in your handout, Paul has three pastoral goals in the use of this metaphor. There's, two, there's one handout, that, that's a supplement for later on, but then the PDF actually has this handout that I'm going through right now. So you want the PDF. We're looking at the PDF right now. Number one. This metaphor of the olive tree should instill godly fear in Gentile Christians against being spiritually arrogant and presumptuous and looking down on or despising Israel. That is the primary point of this warning, right? It should instill godly fear in Gentile Christians against being spiritually arrogant and presumptuous and looking down on and despising Israel. Uh, it should instill uh, since Why should we do that? Since we enjoy God's spiritual blessings only through the Jews and solely on the basis of God's grace, not because we earned it. Um, verse 17. If some of the branches have been broken off. All right, so now follow closely, right? There's an argument here. So the olive tree is the people of God. It includes Jew and Gentile, right? But if some of the branches have been broken off, that is, if non-Christian Jewish branches have been broken off the olive tree of the people of God, non-Christian Jewish branches, and you, Christian Gentiles, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, that is, a, a grafted in as a Gentile shoot among Jewish believers in Jesus the Messiah, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, 
Do not consider yourselves to be superior to those other branches. There's a lot there. That's a a very important verse. Paul is telling the Roman Gentiles, get your salvation history right, guys. Go back and read the book of Genesis again. Start putting the storyline of the Bible together properly. Where is this arrogance coming from? Gentile Christians are part of Israel's spiritual heritage. Verse 18, don't consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. What do you make of that verse? Guys, honestly, that's one of those verses that ties the whole Bible together, right there. You do not support the root. The root supports you. That has to have some bearing on our outlook on Israel, the church, all that kind of stuff. Gentile Christians who boast over Jews are demonstrating an attitude of disdain for, their, for the Jewish heritage. Yes, it, it's that very heritage upon which the Gentile Christians themselves depend for their own spiritual standing, for the root that gives spiritual nourishment to Jewish and Gentile believers alike in that olive tree of God, the people of God, is the patriarchs as recipients and transmitters of the promises of God. And that root is not only of historical interest. Paul's not just saying that root, that, that root supports you. It's now in the present. The root of the patriarchs continues to be the source of spiritual nourishment that believers require. There is only one root and only one tree. And branches, whether Jew or Gentile, that do not remain attached to that tree are doomed to wither and die. Here again, we see that very careful balance of Paul's argument in Romans. Physical descent from the patriarchs, DNA, does not in itself bring salvation, right? 225 to 29, 96b to 29, he argues that at length. Jews are in the same position as Gentiles, held under sin's power, chapter 2, verse 1 to 320, and needing to respond to God in faith to be saved, 321 to 425. Yet, salvation comes only to those who are of Abraham's seed. The people of God are one, and that people has both a Jewish root and a continuing Jewish element. Verse 19, you will say then, branches were broken off so I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And there we just read a big chunk of text warning us against apostasy, right? Of turning away from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Hear the apostles' words, Christian. God is under no obligation to spare you if you don't persevere in the faith. If God so judged Jews who have a natural connection to the tree and to its sustaining root, naturally, right, then God will surely judge those who have been grafted in as as wild alien branches, which is us, by the way, right? We're the alien branches, Gentiles. So what do you think? I, I think uh, maybe we have to change the name of our church or in the merged church, who knows, from New City Baptist or Mount Pleasant Rivers to the contrary to nature, ingrafted, wild olive shoot church. What do you think, right? It's a real mouthful. Uh, it would certainly keep us humble, though, because that's what it is. 
It would be right in line with God's sovereign salvation plan. The contrary to nature, ingrafted, wild olive shoot church. No, no one Gentile Christian can presume upon God's grace and imagine that the blessings of salvation will be theirs regardless of their continuance in the faith. Unbelieving Jews made that same mistake, didn't they? We're Jews. We're the descendants of Abraham. Being in a covenant relationship with God is ours by rights. And John the Baptist and Jesus and the Apostle Paul, they all warned and rebuked them. And now, now Paul here is chastising Gentiles for making that same ethnocentric mistake and for throwing God's grace under the bus. So, what's the lesson here? The lesson is, don't be proud, Gentile Christian, for being engrafted, contrary to nature, into the people of God. That's the main takeaway from this metaphor. Gentile Christians are part of Israel's spiritual heritage, so we must not despise or look down on Israel. Say it again. Gentile Christians are part of Israel's spiritual heritage, so we must not despise or look down on Israel. Which doesn't mean we have to have a portrait of Benjamin Netanyahu hanging in our living room walls, uh, nor must we be anti-Palestinian or even pro-Israel in our politics. That has nothing to do with this. Nothing. But it does mean we understand that our very spiritual existence as Gentile Christians, depends on our partaking of the tree whose nourishing roots are planted in the soil of the Jewish patriarchs and God's promises to the patriarchs as they are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and to which, therefore, Jews naturally belong. That's the thrust of this text. We do well to keep the continuity and the flow and historical order of God's plan of redemption clearly in mind. As verse 24 tells us, we Gentiles were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated Jewish olive tree. That being the case, any boasting on our part for being included in the people of God or looking down our spiritual noses at Jews is out of place. What did God prophesy to Israel in the Old Testament? I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I will call them my people who are not my people. And I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. That is our spiritual pedigree if we're Gentiles. We're the new kids on the block, wallowing in darkness and pagan ignorance until the Lord saved us by his electing grace. Secondly, this metaphor of the olive tree should instill hope regarding the future of ethnic Israel because God has the power to graft them in again, 1123. Verse 23, and if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. Ah, this, this is such a vivid, beautiful illustration of God's grace and love. I want to ask Christian, do you have um, Jewish friends, Jewish neighbors, Jewish co-workers who don't believe the gospel? Perhaps you've evangelized them nine ways from Sunday, yet still they resist. 
keep at it. Persevere. Don't give up. And if, if you have never done that, you need to start evangelizing your Jewish colleagues and friends. Uh, bring this text to mind as you pray for them. And as you do all that you can, God's grace assisting you to make them envious of the covenantal blessings that you enjoy. These verses give real hope. Real hope. They, they tell us God desires to save his people. They give us a divine perspective on the situation, which may seem to us to be a hopeless situation, but it's not. Hear the word of the Lord. God is able to graft the original Jewish branches back into the olive tree of the people of God. They only need to believe the gospel. And it's a very easy, natural bit of botanical surgery. Much more natural, in fact, than wild Gentile olive shoots being grafted in contrary to nature. That's his argument. And this is the third pastoral implication of Paul's metaphor in the PDF. Verse 24 exalts God's sovereign grace by highlighting a surprising turn in God's salvation historical plan, which is contrary to nature. Namely, his plan to include many Gentiles as part of the people of God. Hear that last part? That's a surprising turn. Many Gentiles are included in the people of God. Verse 24. After all, if you, Gentiles, were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Again, that's a, <laughs> that's a pretty in-your-face sort of text. And now with verse 25, we come to the Mount Everest of the whole text. Uh, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery. Now, Paul uses this term mystery 21 times in his writing. It's a very important biblical concept. He never uses it in the sense of Sherlock Holmes figuring out a puzzle kind of thing. Paul never speaks... Paul never speaks of mystery that can be solved by using our powers of deduction. Uh, Here's a mystery definition. This is on your PDF handout. Mystery definition. Revelation from God that the Old Testament did not clearly reveal, but has now been clearly revealed in Jesus Christ. Particularly the saving salvation purposes of God now affected in Jesus and summed up in the gospel itself. Guys, I see you looking at that. That paper has nothing to do with what we're looking at right now. That's the supplement. The PDF is what we're looking through, okay? And what the mystery of verse 25 is, I'll explain in a minute. But he says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. And it goes without saying, almost every word of that verse is hotly disputed. And for those who are theologically curious, this is where the supplement comes in, (laughs) that paper I handed out. It looks at verse 26 in depth. It's taken from an old sermon of mine. And if there's time today, we might read through it. I would like to. It really gets into the exegetical weeds. Uh, But if not, we don't have time, just consult it at home. So with monstrous impertinence, just leave that supplement to the side. I'm just going to explain or defend my position right now. It's all there in the supplement, though. I'm just going to tell you what's what. So centuries, centuries of controversy and debate settled right now in this from Pastor John Bell. So here we go. All throughout verses 11 to 24, Paul's implied that Israel would one day experience a spiritual revival. A revival that would extend far beyond the bounds of just a faithful remnant. 
Which means, this is very important, verse 25 isn't a bolt out of the blue. Israel's transgression and loss is contrasted with Israel's full inclusion in verse 12. Israel's rejection is contrasted with Israel's acceptance in verse 15. And the broken off branches in verse 20 are contrasted with the hope that the natural branches will be grafted in again in verse 24. So now we come to this, but it's not a bolt out of the blue. He's already been talking about this theme a lot. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Beloved, God wants us to understand from his word that this hardening of Israel, a hardening which has lasted almost 2,000 years, is not God's last word to his old covenant people. God wants us to know that. He wants us to read our Bibles in that way, I would argue. He wants us to live in its light. But Israel's restoration or engrafting back into the olive tree of the people of God, that's going to happen on God's timeline. There's a process here, a a surprising salvation historical sequence. It's shocking. It's surprising. It's not what people were expecting. So let's just lay it all out step by step. God has first determined to save a certain number of Gentiles. How many Gentiles that may be, we have no idea. This could go on for millennia. Guys, we could still be living in the early church period, right? The way that we think of like Augustine and stuff, it's like, oh, that's the early church. People could be looking at us and saying, oh yeah, Angela Norlander, she lived in the early church period back in 2023. (laughs) It's possible. Um, But only when that numerical fullness is complete, when the full number of Gentiles has come in, will Israel's hardening be removed. That's what Paul says. Only then will Israel repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 25. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters. And what is this mystery of which Paul speaks? It's God's unexpected salvation historical sequence. That's the mystery. Gentiles now, Israel later in that final generation. Verse 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. And Paul is speaking of ethnic Israel in verse 26. So, for the remainder of this lesson, guys, I want us to remove from our minds any notion of the present-day state of Israel in the Middle East. When Paul speaks of Israel in chapters 9 through 11 in the book of Romans, he's speaking about Jews, the biological descendants of Abraham. Ethnic Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, And in this way, all ethnic Israel will be saved. That's how I'm arguing for this, okay? Now, Paul is not saying every single Jew without exception is going to be saved. He's speaking more generally of the corporate entity of ethnic Jews as they exist in a particular point in time in the future. I found Doug Moo's explanation of this quite helpful. We sometimes use the word all, we're thinking of all Israel, but we, we sometimes use the word all to mean a large representative number, don't we? Uh, we might say all the nation, the whole nation was outraged by the incident. It, that doesn't mean every single last citizen without exception was outraged, but a large representative number, they were outraged. Or we might say all the students, the whole school went out to watch the game. Again, not every last student without exception, but a large representative number. In verse 26, Paul is telling us that when the full number of Gentiles comes into the kingdom, a number predetermined by God, there will then be a massive shift 
a majority shift in Jewish outlook, and all Israel will be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Which, as we saw back in verse 15, is the trigger ushering in the climactic end of human history, the return of Jesus Christ and the final resurrection, life from the dead, those greater riches given to the world. And now Paul quotes Old Testament scripture, Old Testament scripture where Israel's future salvation is confirmed. It's a composite quote taken from the prophet Isaiah, as well as an allusion to a text in Jeremiah, teaching that the deliverer, Jesus, will remove ungodliness from Israel in accordance with God's covenant promise. So look at the text. The deliverer, Jesus, will come from Zion. He will turn godliness, godlessness rather, away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So in simple language, Jesus will consummate his covenantal promises to ethnic Israel by taking away their sins. He will grant Israel salvation, the same salvation Paul was praying for back in chapter 10, verse 1. The same salvation Israel first rejected. Salvation from sin through faith in Jesus Christ. A salvation, beloved, rooted in God's unswerving faithfulness to his promise and election. Look at verse 28. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. And now we see so clearly the place these verses have in Paul's overall argument. The refusal, refusal of Israel to believe the gospel does not mean God has relegated Israel to the rubbish heap of history. How could he, since he elected Israel, 11.2, and God's gifts and his call are irrevocable, verse 29. Those are strong verses. Not then for their own sake, but because of God's pledged words to the patriarchs, he will not annul Israel's election, verses 28 to 29. Ah, see, there's the needed balance. There's the, I think, the biblical perspective that eludes so many Christians today. Yes, Jews are presently enemies of the gospel. But, on the other hand, they are the chosen special people of God. The natural descendants of the patriarchs with whom the covenantal promises were originally made. And God never goes back on his gifts or his call. Both are irrevocable, Paul says here. God did not lead Israel halfway down the covenantal path and then ditch them because of their unbelief. I mean, it would make perfect sense to me. I was arguing last week if he did say, you deny Jesus, the Messiah, my son? Okay, you're out. That's it, that's the end. He doesn't do that. <laughs> As Paul says in Romans 3.3, 3, what if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. That's Romans 3.3. 3. And then in verses 31 to 30, 30 to 31 of chapter 11, Paul explains just how God will manifest his grace to Israel. And again, notice the sequence of events, all that sovereignly predetermined by God. Verse 30, just as you Gentiles who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, 
So they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. Human disobedience, divine mercy, that's the story of both Jew and Gentile. The Gentiles have received divine mercy now. The Jews will receive that same mercy at some point in the future when they are awakened by God's Holy Spirit to the realities of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The New Living Translation, the NLT, I, think, I really like how they phrase this. Verse 30, Once you Gentiles were rebels against God, but when the people of Israel rebelled against him, God was merciful to you instead. Now they are the rebels, and God's mercy has come to you, so that they too will share in God's mercy. For God has imprisoned everyone, both Jew and Gentile, in disobedience, so he can have mercy on everyone. Say amen to that. So let me conclude in the same way that Paul concludes this section. For 11 chapters now, the Apostle Paul has been giving his comprehensive account of the gospel. Step by step, he's shown how God has... Uh, revealed his way of putting sinners right with himself, how Jesus died for our sins and was raised for our justification, how we are united with Jesus in his death and resurrection, how the Christian life is lived out not under the law, but in the spirit, and how God plans to incorporate the fullness of Israel and of the Gentiles into his new community. Gentiles now, Israel later in the final generation. This comprehensive account has taken in time and eternity, history and eschatology, justification, sanctification, glorification. And in verse 33, Paul stops. Like he's like out of breath. And he falls down on his face in adoration. He worships and fittingly concludes his sweeping description of God's sovereign plan of salvation for Jews and Gentiles, past, present, future, with a doxology that expresses wonder and awe at what God is doing. And with this, we're going to close. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Okay, it's 10.05. We have 10 minutes for questions and or maybe looking at that supplement. Um, But questions, clarifications. Quinn? I'm just wondering how how it works, ethnic Israel in terms now, I guess more practically, intermarriage and how do you even know who's who's Jewish in that sense? Yeah, people still know, though. I mean, Winchesky downstairs, like, they, they know, right? So, so yeah, going forward, is that kind of been guaranteed? I don't know. I'm not sure. But there'll, there'll, be, there'll be Steven Spielbergs from now until Jesus Christ returns. That, 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 that became, it's a, I'm not trying to dismiss the question, but I'm saying you're right. I mean, there has been intermarriage, and like, okay, does 20%, you know, equal? I know sometimes the mother versus the father. Right, yeah. God knows how to work that out. There actually are ethnic, bi- I mean, if you ask five Jews... What makes a Jew? You're going to get five different answers. I mean, it can be a very controversial question. Paul's here looking at descent from Abraham. So there's an ethnic DNA thing. That's, that's looked as being almost politically incorrect or racist or that's kind of like what, how the Nazis were looking at things. And so there can be real pushback against that definition of what a Jew is. Or is, it, is this Gentile who gets circumcised and becomes a Jew? 
becomes a Jew? Is, are, is that a true Jew? You know, by, by Jewish reckoning? Paul here, and it's controversial, right? Paul here is saying we're talking about ethnic Israel. So sorry, in that case, then some adoption would not grow joining the community like that, and then offspring would not be... He doesn't get into it, but he's, he's speaking to ethnic Israel. Yeah. So if you can convert to Judaism, it's like, okay, is that, I mean, I don't, I don't think that's where it's going at. It's going at, actually, these descendants of Abraham. How would you explain um, chapter 11, verse like 32, God has gotten everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all? I can just kind of see, like, in an evangelistic conversation or something. Like, even for me right now, I don't know if I'm just forgetting other things. Like, it's hard to, like, it almost makes God sound like, oh, well, do you have the power <laughs> to not bind somebody to yeah. disobedience, Jews and Gentiles? Um, but you're doing that so that you can have mercy. It, you know, it just, like, from an unbelieving perspective, it's like, well, that God sounds like he's just wanting to get all the glory for himself or something. I know it's wrong. I just... if, if I'm understanding you right, remember also the last week we looked at that text where he's actually, he is saving a remnant, though, is right, right? So it's actually... It's not just, a, here's a lost cause. We've got to wait for the last day or you're bound under disobedience. Every Jew is. It's like, oh, he's saving a remnant. 7,000 did not bow the knee to Baal in the days of Elijah. And even so today, Paul says, I'm a Jew. You know, I'm a Christian. So you're actually, this is actually how God is being still faithful to the corporate entity of Israel by saving some Jews today. You know, but actually in, in, in the future at some point, there's going to be this massive turnaround. Is that, was I getting what you're getting at? Or? I think so, yeah. I just, I, if, you know, say if I was like reading through this passage with somebody, say they're like a Jew. Uh, I, if they ask questions about verse thirty-two, I don't know. Yeah, I would make confident yeah. like answer in a way that didn't make God like look like he's this vengeful, vindictive kind of. Romans 9, 10, 11 are all of a piece, right? I will have mercy upon whom I have mercy. The election of God in salvation is, a, is at the very foundation of this whole text. And so those, those questions you're asking right there kind of go back to Romans 9. Who can resist his will, right? So that you want to look at 9, 10, 11 all as one piece. It all goes together. I mean, it fits the whole book, but that particularly... How about in the time we have, just to get it on the record, let's just read through. You can say, this is nonsense. <laughs> Let me just tell you why I'm reading all Israel the way that I am. Okay, so look at your supplement. Um, huh, I didn't, did I include this in my thing? Okay, I got it here anyway. All Israel will be saved. Romans eleven twenty six. Uh, and you can see at the top, three interpretive options for all Israel. We're getting into the weeds here, guys. This is... Deep stuff. So, some people just live off this. Ah, this is my meat and drink. Others are like this is too too much. But let me just read it. So you can have three options there. We'll look at each one. Romans eleven twenty six, arguably the most debated verse in the whole New Testament. A big part of the debate, the biggest part by far, turns on defining Israel. Of whom is Paul speaking when he writes Israel? All Israel will be saved. There are three options. Option number one: the elect Jews and Gentiles from both covenants. As far as I know, Paul uses the term Israel in this sense in only one other place, Galatians 6.16, but he does use it, which makes it an interpretive option. Galatians 6.16, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule to the Israel of God. It's the one place that uses that, but so it makes it an option. It's legit. Option number two, the nation of Israel. Option number three, the elect within Israel. So two options are limited to Jews. One option is both Jews and Gentiles. Personally, I'm convinced option number one 
the elect Jews and Gentiles from both covenants is incorrect. It really comes down to my thinking between number one or number two and number three. Option number one just doesn't work, and I'll explain why in a minute. Between options two and three, I'm inclined, you hear that word? Inclined to lean toward number two, the nation of Israel. But number three, the elect within Israel has a lot to recommend it as well. But first, let me explain to you why I believe Paul is not talking about Jews and Gentiles, option number one. Did you know that Paul uses the word Israel only nine times in the entire epistle to the Romans? I was really surprised by that. I assumed it would be a lot more. And did you know that every single one of these, these nine occurrences of the word Israel is found in Romans 9 to 11? Nowhere else in this letter does Paul make mention of the word. That's very interesting. As well, leaving the much debated verse 26 aside for a moment, every other time in these three chapters where Paul speaks of Israel, he's referring to ethnic Jewish Israel. And no one debates that, even the people who like option number one. No one debates it. All sides agree. And this ethnic sense is clearly the meaning in the last part of verse 25. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And again, all sides agree that it's ethnic Israel being referenced in verse 25. But to give the noun Israel another meaning as we move into verse 26, the very next verse, a non-ethnic religious meaning, such as option number one, the community of the elect, including both Jews and Gentiles, that, that definition is foreign to the context. It's foreign to the entire epistle. Paul never uses that word in that sense in any other place in this letter. Is the church in Rome supposed to have a copy of Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia near at hand to understand that verse properly? Because that's the only place he uses it like that. I think that argument has weight. Also, it would really hurt Paul's argument at this point to use that kind of a definition for Israel. Paul's purpose in Romans 11 is to counter a tendency for Gentiles to appropriate for themselves exclusively the title God's people. For Paul in this context to call the church Israel would be the worst mistake he could make. He's only adding fuel to the fire of Gentile arrogance by giving them the grounds to boast. We are the true Israel. The last impression Paul would want to convey to his Gentile readers in this context is that they are the true Israel. He would want to avoid that impression like the plague. I think for those reasons, we can safely avoid option number one. Paul is speaking of ethnic Israel in verse 26. But is this ethnic Israel as a whole, the big corporate ethnic entity, or the elect within ethnic Israel, that remnant, right? Uh, Is Paul speaking of option two or three? That is very difficult to determine. We must tread humbly and cautiously at this point. Again, Paul uses the term Israel uh, nine, not nice, nine times in these uh, three chapters. And almost every time he refers to ethnic Israel. Eight of the nine times refers to corporate Israel. Israel as a whole, option number two. Only once, nine, six. Does Paul refer to the Jewish elect within corporate Israel? But that means, contextually, both are legitimate options. If he does it, it is an option. Let's just quickly read through the nine verses where Paul uses the noun Israel. Romans 9, 6. This is the first time Paul mentions Israel in the whole letter. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. That is the Jewish elect within Israel, option number three. So there you have it. So that that one-off usage 
Um, that's a one-off usage. Every other time, Paul is speaking of the nation as a whole. Every other time. Romans 9.27. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only a remnant will be saved. Romans 9.31. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as a way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Romans 10.19. Again, I asked, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. Romans 10.21. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held up my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Romans 11.2. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know that scripture says in the passage of Elijah how he appealed to God against Israel? Romans 11.27. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly that they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. Romans 11.25. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, that you may not think you are superior. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And finally, our much debated verse 11.26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. So it could be in 11.26 that Paul is using Israel in the 9.6 sense, the number 3 sense. He's saying that all the elect in Israel over the time period of both covenants will be saved. It acts as an inclusio. So they're kind of like bookends. Romans 9, 6. All right? It is not as though God's word had failed, but not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. And then the other end of the bookend, Romans eleven twenty six. in this way all Israel will be saved. This is an interpretation that deserves our serious consideration. But it would require a shift in meaning from verse 25, which is being used in the national sense. Also, Paul writes of all Israel being saved in 11.26. He doesn't say that back in chapter 9, verse 6. All Israel. Right? That sounds like the language of corporate entity, doesn't it? All Israel will be saved. Paul is not saying that every Jew, without exception, will be saved. He's speaking more generally of the corporate ethnic entity of ethnic Jews, a large representative number as, as they exist in a particular point in time in the future. Then I go through the that Doug Moo part. You know, following option number two, Paul is telling us that when the full number of the Gentiles come into the kingdom, there will be a massive shift, a majority shift in Jewish outlook, and all Israel will be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. <sighs> okay. It's all on the record now. You can go back and parse it and rip it apart. But, uh, that's, but again, why are we doing this? It's because this is part of our last time, our eschatology series. I'm convinced, brothers and sisters, from the Word of God, that um, this is part of Jesus Christ's return. This is part of the events surrounding his return, uh, life from the dead. These, these greater riches given to the world when, when ethnic Israel is brought into the covenant community of God. Uh, those, those natural uh, tree limbs are brought back into uh, that olive tree. So... There you have it. Next week, (laughs) part one of the millennium.